Welcome to the show where we unearth new ways of looking at ever-evolving life around the world, seen from a number of different industries, cultures, and backgrounds. But there's one thing that unites everyone I speak to. They all want to do their part to make the world better in their own unique ways. It's a uniting passion. Whether they're from the commercial world, third sector, or public sector, from the global north or the global south, my name is Philippa White, and welcome to Thai Unearthed. For anyone that has followed Thai for any length of time, you'll know that we are all about taking people from can to do. We create the space for people to find their unique power to make meaningful change. And we do this by disrupting comfort zones. Helping people discover what they are capable of doing and specifically the nature of their unique power. So you can imagine how excited I was to talk to my old friend, Sarah Tate, today. Sarah and her co-author, Anna Voigt, are launching their fantastic book, The Rebuilders, in June. And it's all about going from setback to comeback in business and beyond. And this chat was bursting with energy. Talk about a connection of minds. Now, I know Sarah from my BBH days, and I think before that as well. And she's an organizational and brand strategist, formerly the CEO of the agency TBWA London. She was voted best leader in marketing by the Women in Marketing Awards, and she won Campaign's Female Frontier Award. She's an accredited executive coach, and she co-hosts the Rebuilders podcast. And we cover off a lot on this conversation. Comfort zones, failure, tools to create more human-centered organizations, and everything in between. Sarah has a wicked sense of humor, so I promise you'll be smiling all the way through. So throw on those running shoes or grab that cup of tea, and here's Sarah. Sarah, it is so great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. I know. I'm just, it's so great when you rekindle friendships. We've known each other from so long ago, and with your book coming out and seeing this movement on LinkedIn, it's just so great to rekindle our conversation. So, yeah, and thrilled to have you. And it's so nice to be able to do it on opposite sides of the world as well. Like you're in Brazil and I wouldn't be able to see you face to face. This is such a nice chance to have a good chat, basically. I know. Absolutely. So to that point, where are you? Tell us where you're sitting right now. So I'm sitting in my uh, quite sunny kitchen in London. It's quite a nice day. And I'm keeping my eye out because we have seven foxes, fox oh. cubs living under our shed. They come out during the day and kind of run around. So I sort of keep my eyes out in case I can catch them. But I'm so in North nice. London. That's very London, isn't it, with the foxes? I'm sure the kids yeah. love having little cubs. They do. I mean, they've probably all got mange and vermin. The foxes, <laughs> not the kids. Um, but, um, but they really look cute. That's so nice. So, Sarah, we've got a lot to cover off today. I am so excited for this conversation for so many reasons, because I read your book. There are so many overlaps with Ty, and I just, I feel like this could be a long conversation. We need to kind of keep it to 40 minutes, which is going to be hard. But before we get into all of that stuff, perhaps you can just tell us about you and yeah, why you wrote The Rebuilders. So I am a dyslexic English student who ended up in advertising uh, it, somehow. And I worked as a strategist in advertising for a long time, which was really about understanding people and what makes people tick and what motivates them. And then eventually I moved into running the running of agencies 
And that made me explore what makes people tick in the workplace, you know, in a work context. The book came about for two reasons, really. One was that I was at the time working at an agency called TBWA in London, and I'd gone in as part of a turnaround team in 2017. And it had been, it still is a wonderful brand, but the London business had been in a slightly tricky period of time for a few years. And so we'd gone in to breathe some life back into it and financially turn it around. And we'd had a couple of really good years. I had two partners, Anna, who I wrote the book with, and Andy Jex is my creative partner. And we were living, I guess, the notion of taking something and kind of bringing it back to its best. So rather than going off and doing a shiny startup, we, we thought about it like a startup, but it was of something that, that was established. And, and then at the same time, what happened was we were chugging along, got to 2019. It was all great. We'd had a good couple of years. And then March 2020 happened and yes. we were in a global pandemic. And we realised after a couple of years of kind of it being on the up and riding high, suddenly, like everyone else, we were trying to run a business blind to what was happening and what was coming down the line, etc. And I'm really pleased to say that at the end of 21, middle of 22, the business was still in a really great place. But at the time, we were, you know, very much sort of struggling. And Anna and I also started a podcast for reasons that we now look back on and feel that what on earth were we doing? But um, we were just interested in the, the notion of problem solving. And we both had two kids each who were like under five. And our husbands were working. We were homeschooling and, you know, disinfecting our lettuce in the bath <laughs> and doing all those other things that people were doing and slowly going slightly mad. And we just decided to start a podcast, which tells you how bad it was that starting a podcast we thought would keep us saner than what was happening at the time. And so we thought we would, we wanted to explore stories of turning things around, like putting things back on track. And that is essentially how the Rebuilders started. That's where it came from. And it was partly because of what we were going through at work, but also we've become quite interested in the things, the tools and experiences that we drew on to go to rebuild the agency and then to kind of keep it on the rails for another two years were not, there were some professional tools, but mainly they were life skills. You know, there were things that we'd learned, just our own resourcefulness or not, as the case might be, that, that we'd learned through all types of things and breakups and having babies and, and things like that. And, and we became interested in the fact that these two things were, were quite combined. Yeah. And so we started interviewing people who weren't business people, partly because we thought it would be a bit boring to interview like business turnarounds. We just interviewed people who'd overcome something in their life, who'd rebuilt an aspect of their life or work. And we talked to like Lucy Rocker, who had overcome alcoholism and started this amazing community called the Soberistas. And we talked to Chris Watkins, who's a film director, who had gone to prison for in a, because of a tax avoidance scheme. So he thought it was a legitimate scheme and it turned out to be illegal and he, he went to jail. And these amazing stories, which made us feel, I don't know, gave us a bit of sucker, I guess, going through this sort of weird time. And then we just got more and more down the rabbit hole of, you know, what's going on? Like, what are the skills that people are drawing on? And are there any learnings that come out of it? And, you know, as good 
strategists. We kept going and kept going and interviewed more and more people. And, and then in the end, we had a book. That's extraordinary. So the podcast came before the book. Yes, it did. I it did. We just started. That. Yeah, the first series of the podcast came out mid pandemic. We started recording, oh, I think, in April. That's so interesting. It's such a smart thing to do because, like you say, there's so many learnings. How did you find the people? We just, we often looked in magazines. We'd be in magazines, we'd see like an amazing story of someone who, that's how we found Chris Watkins, this person who'd been to jail and then come out and he'd written a book about it. And you'd often get these great human interest stories. And we would just contact people and say, we'd love... We wouldn't just be like, we're just two girls in our bedroom doing a podcast. We'd say, hello, we're two professional people we're doing a podcast. Would you like to come on? And lots of them did. And that was how it started. And then it sort of built momentum. And then once we had got the book deal, we were then able to, to go and interview lots and lots more, more yeah. people for that. Well, the book is phenomenal. I was very lucky to get a pre-read. Thank you. Um, it's called The Rebuilders, as you, you know, as I mentioned, and as you've mentioned. You know, while reading the book, I found so many overlaps with Ty. And we're all about taking people from can to do, right? So we do this by giving people the space to realize their potential. And we do this by disrupting people's comfort zones. Mm. Now, you talk about the more we encounter setbacks the better we get at encountering them. And that discomfort isn't just a stimulus for growth, but also for strength. And you give a beautiful example in the book about the tree. Yeah. So the tree example, this was a, a story that my publisher, our publisher put us onto, and we were like, oh, that's great. So there was a Biosphere project called Biosphere 2 in the US. If you don't know about it, just go and look it up because the whole project is insane. And there's all these dramatic political infighting stories around it. It's like a community that went to try and live in a biosphere geodome and grow everything themselves. So that's a whole nother side. They were also interested to see if they could create this sort of climate, this closed climate. And they were really excited to find out that the trees that they grew in there grew much higher, grew much taller, much quicker than trees outside the biosphere dome. Because they were like, great, this is going to be brilliant for crop growing. They were thinking about going to live on Mars, I think. They were just experimenting to see if, you know, you could create a sort of closed system. But they were less thrilled to find out that once they, before they reached maturation, they fell over. Like they just couldn't. They never reached their full height. And when they examined the roots and what remained of the tree, what they realised is because they didn't have any external forces, any wind, anything buffeting them, they grew really, really tall, but they didn't develop this thing called stress wood, which is a key component for strong growth. And so without that stress wood, they just couldn't support themselves in the long term. Human beings are a little bit like that in the sense that if we remain permanently in our comfort zone, we do lose touch a bit with how we manage when we when we go outside yeah. it. I've talked to quite a few therapists and medical professionals in the book. And, and actually, I, I'm not, this is not a book for people who have anxiety necessarily. I don't have a prescription for that. But they do talk about, but for people with mild anxiety, one thing that therapists will often encourage them to do is take small steps into their stretch zone to try small discomforts to get used to that feeling and to build their confidence bit by bit. And for those, for, you know, for people who don't have anxiety, I think the same is true. The other reason we wrote the book is trials and tribulations, like setbacks are 
unavoidable. Like it doesn't matter how rich you are and how lucky you think you are, it comes to everyone. You know, there will always be stuff that that goes wrong, that doesn't go right, that sets you back. And learning to overcome those things from a really young age allows you to do more and more and avoiding them or suppressing it in some way, you don't develop that stress wood that you need to be able to, to kind of overcome things. Our setbacks are a component of strong growth in a way, just the same way as that, that stress wood is for the trees. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting for our listeners, um, both Sarah and I worked at BBH and uh, Jim Carroll is one of our mentors and I just had a podcast with him as well and we were reflecting on Thai and why Thai is so important and he said we're all going to be challenged everyone's going to be challenged and in our jobs we're so used to driving a train along a track but we have to learn how to lay railway and that's hard and like when problems Mm. come up you know we're all going to be challenged we're all going to have to sort of change tack in some way whatever that is but it's it's hard to do that if you haven't had that practice and you need to learn how to lay railway and that's what Thai does is we provide people with that space to kind of grow into it to challenge themselves to test themselves to step out of that hierarchy to then be able to lay railway and I thought yeah the, the laying railway example I thought was such a nice way of looking at it. there was a term coined in I think the late 70s to talk about the the global economic situation which is the term about a VUCA climate yes which stands for volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous which literally makes me come out in hives. It's like all the things that you don't want. But it's used, you you will hear that term more and more because although it was designed 30 years ago to talk about a particular thing, we live in an almost constant VUCA climate. So economically, globally, with climate change, but also in our own lives, things change so much, so rapidly at a pace that it didn't previously. And therefore learning to somehow be, if not okay, then manage through ambiguity and uncertainty and volatility is a is a real strength. It's a real set of tools to have in your toolkit. So that's your laying the railway tracks, yeah. really. And, you know, and through this book, we never kind of, our, our ambition in it isn't to say, hey, don't worry, every cloud's got a silver lining, you know, out of out of every failure comes something good. Because you know what, it doesn't. Like we talk to people in this book who have, you know, we, we talk to undertakers and funeral directors and a lot of loss and grief in life is very, very sad. There's not a silver lining to it. The ambition of the book is to go to get through setbacks, to learn how to recover from them is a brilliant set of skills to develop. Because when they come at you, and they will, Every time they come, you're a little bit closer to thinking, do you know what, I've got this. Yeah. And what's great for our listeners, the book is full of tools. Every chapter, you read it, you're like, oh, that's really interesting. And then they give you a tool. They're like, you could try this at home. <laughs> it's really good. Now, one of our mentors as well, we have another mentor. We have many, actually, but is Sir John Hagerty, also BBH. And he talks about doing interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. It's, it's almost our North Star because there's a lot of things that we talk about, you know, uh, be constantly curious, to be constantly inspired, push through boundaries to unlock potential. I mean, expand your personal circle. So there's a few sort of things to kind of hang your hat on throughout the Thai experience. But under this umbrella, John hangs a few things. And one of them, as I mentioned, is be constantly curious, be constantly inspired. And in the book, you say curiosity will get you further than knowledge. And I just wonder, can you explain this more? Because I think it's beautiful. Yeah. So this insight 
or it occurred to us, I'm not saying it's a, a new thing that's never been thought by anyone before, but it occurred to us when the first person we ever interviewed was a guy called Jason Gonzalez, who used to work at BBH actually, who went on to relaunch the Face magazine. And we had interviewed him and he was so chipper. I mean, you know, we were sort of falling falling to bits and he was working, his wife was working, they have two small children. Um, he was running the Face magazine. I mean, not a great time to be running a publication predicated on cultural events and cultural <laughs> happenings when there's a pandemic going on. Like nothing was secure. And yet he was sort of, I don't know, he seemed fine. And we were really trying to understand why he was so fine. And he he talked about, he said, was sort of saying, I love uncertainty. You know, my attitude is not to be led by the answers, but to be led by the questions. And I actually get quite excited about not having a plan and having some good questions. And I was like, I mean, that sounds amazing. I'd love to be that person. And when we dug into it more, actually, it was a, it was something that he had, an outlook he'd acquired through his life, you know, through big things happening to him. Like he got, he got married and he got divorced quite early on and he'd gone on to be remarried. So he'd sort of been through enough, I think, in life that he'd got to the stage where he was like, I can be okay with uncertainty and also not only be okay with it, but see that maybe I could get some energy from it. So we started exploring that. And in general, no one likes uncertainty. Like our brains are just not wired for it. And there's lots of uh, reasons we go into in the book, neurological reasons. But then there is a group of people who actually quite like uncertainty and seek it out with that sense of curiosity. And that's artists. And you often find if you look at quotes from artists or David Bowie's a classic one, uh, the whole of Alice in Wonderland is basically just about getting lost and not knowing what's happening and going through the rabbit hole. I saw a quote that really crystallized it from the the amazing artist Grayson Perry, where he was saying, I think I'm addicted to to periods of doubt and low confidence. Because if you see everything, uh, if you're sure that everything you're going to do is going to be good, then like, what's the point? He said, I see it as a sign that I'm teetering on the edge of something new. And we suddenly realised that what those artists were doing was deliberately getting themselves into states of not knowing in order to be curious about what would arise. I was like, wow, that's amazing. So amazing. I I know. And like, I, I definitely... I know, I'm not there yet, right? Although I do like to think, what would David Bowie do if I'm in any situation? Well, I didn't even know that about David Bowie. Like, reading that in the book, yeah. I didn't know that that's what he did. I mean, yeah. any David Bowie fan would, of course, be like, are you crazy? Of course, that was his whole thing. Okay, I, uh, you know, I didn't know that about him. Yeah, but, it sort yeah. of makes sense. And, and so that's where the curiosity comes from. This idea that in a period of not knowing, if you can be curious, you can allow something to emerge allow something new to emerge, allow something unexpected to emerge, allow something, dare I say, better to emerge from the kind of ashes of whatever pile of steaming who <laughs> you might be trying to emerge from yourself. Um, and that mindset of curiosity, again, the Buddhists have a term for it, they call it beginner's mind. The Buddhists have a term for all the good stuff already because they all figured it out, where they sort of say, um, in the expert's mind, options are f- a few, but in the beginner's mind, they are many. You know, like, I'm probably, that's not the exact, I haven't got that exactly right. But the idea that expertise and knowing closes things down, but curiosity, it's like children. Curiosity opens things up again. So trying when you feel uncertain to be curious. 
uh, and when you feel fearful to try a little bit to be curious and it's difficult and to try and leave expectations behind and, and see what else can come out. Yeah, you know, again, another podcast that I had with a friend of mine who's the head of impact and community at Patagonia. And I was talking to her about, you know, what makes a human centric organization in your mind. Mm. And she said, honestly, it's asking questions. It's not, it's yeah. asking questions. It's understanding not only people at your company and understanding asking questions, but it's also asking questions of people in the communities that you're working. It's understanding. And it's so interesting because with so many of our Thai projects as well, what comes out is the power of active listening and the power yeah. of asking questions and really listening to the answers and then that's when you start to unlock and open a world of opportunity. Because actually, it's very easy. The more expert you become, the more siloed you become, the more entrenched in your beliefs and you don't have any doubt and you sort of think that you know everything. But actually, yeah. if you have that doubt and you open yourself up and you start to ask questions and get out of the way a little bit and see yeah. if there are people who have answers, that's actually yeah. when so many other solutions start to arise. And I think that's it's, where a change needs to start to happen. It's a really great solution space, you know, to create that space for new things to arise. It's also a massive stress reliever on oneself. Yeah. The, the, to be able to get into a position where you can say, I don't know, actually, I, I don't know the answer. Yeah. And, you know, we've all worked for people, very senior people, some of whom give off the I know everything vibe and it tends to make them and not everyone feel good and the people who give off the it's okay let's figure this out vibe and you know you, you can instinctively know which you'd be more comfortable with I'm a big advocate of coaching yeah. and I trained to be a coach last year and coaching is all about good you know good questioning and I, I started doing it when I was working at TBWA and people would bring me things and you know Every day I was confronted with 10,000 things I didn't know, particularly during the pandemic, like we all were. People would bring me stuff and we were still in the office. They'd, they'd get me in the corner and they'd have a look in their eye and they'd approach me and they'd go, how did this thing? And I would I'd sort of seize up, you know, my first year or so, I'd kind of seize up and think, I don't know. I, I don't know the solution to this this specific production problem. And, and over time I worked with a coach and I would just be like, just breathe. And I'd just go, okay, tell me what you think. Yeah. Tell me what you think. Yeah. And so they didn't feel like, oh, Sarah's got all the answers and she's going to judge me badly. But also, the uh, truth was, I didn't know. And mm -hmm. it's much better to work with them to, to yeah. get to a solution. And it gives space for someone to be resourceful. Yeah. And to go, OK, uh, let's I don't know. Let's think this through, actually. Yeah. Um, so if you can, you know, also relieves a huge pressure from oneself to, to be the expert. Yeah. Time. Really interesting. Now, something else that I got super excited about in your book, there are certain parts of the book I'm like, oh, I get really... Um, I love your excitement because you're literally the only person who's read it because you're the only person who's yeah, had a sneak pre-copy. <laughs> well, I'm sure everyone else is going to have the same, uh, the same response once it actually... I'm sad I didn't... Like, I need to get the book because I'd like to actually... It's a great reference material. I need to... It's coming out in June, so I, I need yeah. to get it in June. But you talk about, you know, about how people move from setback to comeback, which is obviously what your book's mm -hmm. actually all about. And you talk about the importance of framing not only success, but also attitudes to failure. And that to mm -hmm. me is a, is a kicker. You know, over the years, it's, it's interesting. I had an info session recently with one of, um, you know, a big bank. And I had, uh, you know, a whole lot of people from the company wanting to understand more about the experience and getting involved. And the head of risk asked, 
what happens if a project fails? And I get that quite a bit, actually. A lot of people say, you know, oh my gosh, you know, you, mm. you, you put people from the private sector with organizations in other parts of the world. I mean, that's, you're setting yourself up for failure, you know, like what happens if this mm. fails? And I love that question because I always then respond by saying, but what is failure? You know, it is an interesting question to ask because when I then say, you know, we've, we haven't had a project that's failed and no one really believes me. Then I say, okay, but has anyone run away from the experience? No. Has anyone... Uh, you know, has everyone learned from the experience? Yes. Yeah. Has it been hard and many times involved tears? Yes. Has the result been different from the expectations? Yes. yes. <laughs> but has everyone, yeah. Has everyone benefited totally from just going through all those movements? A hundred percent, right? And yeah. so I feel like if you're willing to do things differently and you're willing to kind of keep your mind open, then the result is not going to be a failure. As long as everybody involved feels listened to, as everyone everyone feels like they've been part of that solution, for me, that's all that matters. And so you talk about role modeling failures and the importance of making that more commonplace. And yes. I just yeah. wonder, you know, what does that look like and how can you bring that to life? Yeah, the, the fa failure thing is, me and Anna discuss it all the time because some people try and turn the book into, it's neat to summarize as like learnings from failure. And we're like, well, first of all, there aren't always learnings or, or we don't want people to feel they need to. Because I'm like, there's nothing worse than going through something really bad and having the added pressure of going, what's the learning opportunity? What's the learning opportunity here? What am I going to take out there? Like sometimes you just need to like be like, oh God, that it bad thing sucks. happened. And then years <laughs> later, it's like, you know, there's a, there's a saying, comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah, I love that. Like at the time, you, you know, no one can tell you that this is great, but you know, 20 years later, the story of me getting pooed on by a bird in my first ever client meeting in the meeting. That's a whole other story. Now it's like a great comedy gold story. But yeah, so we talk about role modeling failure in different ways. I think they come in all different shapes and sizes. They, we, we talk in the book, one thing is around don't always write them into a narrative. Like sometimes failures are just a failure. Sometimes something just didn't go right. And we can be tempted sometimes to write them into a narrative story of like, I failed at that, I will fail again. I'm not good at this thing. And we cite in the book a sports psychologist called Jamil Qureshi, who works with loads of pro golfers and things. And he always says, in sport in particular, failure is inevitable. It's not part of a narrative of whether you're going to succeed or not. So he kind of says, failure is the payment for success paid in full in advance. So he talks about working with a golfer who wants to win the Open in, say, three years' time. And if he wins a, uh, wins a round, you know, he'll say, do you think winning that round affects your ability to, to win the Open in three years' time? And the answer is, of course, no, it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Like, you've got to fail loads and loads and loads yeah. of times in order to get better at something, yeah. for example. Yeah. So individual failures in and of themselves are not always, not always a massive thing. And we can sort of immortalize them a little bit as this thing that I failed at. So role modeling them in different ways. Sometimes it's just something that went wrong and, and you pass through it. Yeah. But learning as bosses or parents or carers or elders or whoever, or, you know, just friends, family members, learning to share failure and demonstrate, you know, be open about the fact that something has failed is really important. And we have a chapter in there where we talk to three different people in the world of education and child psychology about, you know, the role of failure in children and how important it is to allow them to fail in order to build resilience. And uh, it's this amazing woman, you guys can Google her, she's called Dr. Marion Baker. And she says, as adults, you should just 
model failure all the time. So she talks about goal setting with kids and then and saying to children, like, I didn't get that interview or I didn't, those plants I potted all died, you know, depending on how old they are, because they just need to see that it's very normal for things to follow a wiggly line. It's not always up and it's not always down. And this is sort of the premise of the whole book. It's kind of up and down and round and round <laughs> from the minute you're born until the minute you shoot out the other end, you know? And so just making it, part of the norm, part of everyday life. We also discovered there's a school in Wimbledon, a girls school, and the headmistress created a failure week there. Really? Because, yeah, so so she, and she said because girls, her her reason was girls don't like to fail because they feel it will indicate to them that they're not good at things. And so it, it sort of contracts what they're willing to do. I should say girls in particular. And so she created a week where they all tried something new that they wouldn't probably wouldn't be very good at because they'd never done it before. And the teachers told failure stories. The parents came in and told failure stories just to indicate that like failure is just a thing that happens. Failing is not an indicator that you're not good at something or you're not going to be good at it in the future yeah. or you're not going to go yeah. on and do great stuff. It's just a failure yeah. sometimes. That's really yeah. great. That's really great. Now, we talked about a little bit just now about human-centric organizations and, you know, there's different ways that people create more human-centered places to work. You talk about psychological safety being a key ingredient for business and teams to be able to improve, innovate, and progress. And I really liked that. I thought that, that was really interesting. Again, it, it comes down to having you know, open conversations and being transparent and providing that place for people to be able to talk openly and not feel judged. And the tools, like those examples that you gave in the book were Mm. amazing. The Airbnb one, the one Mm. that I think you invented or the one that you had, uh, Rosebud Thorn. Maybe you can just talk about that and what that means yeah. because I think so many people who if you run a department if you run a company these are so important I think yeah so I struggle I think to speak really directly I'm very British I kind of sugarcoat everything with a million layers and Anna is German-American and she's way more direct than me and I would observe that when we were, we were working she's very polite but direct and I would think oh god I, I wish I could sort of be a little speak my mind a little bit more Clearly, the idea of we find it difficult to have certain types of open, honest conversations and doing loads and loads of research into the fact that you do need to be able to speak honestly and truthfully. If anyone's interested in psychological safety, then Amy Edmondson is the guru. You can read pretty much anything by Professor Amy Edmondson. She's brilliant. I found some research from the UK Violence and Intervention Prevention Centre, which is really about mediating in challenging relationships and situations which spiral into violence. And they talk about the need to speak assertively. And you think assertively sounds like, oh, you know, being rude. But assertively, they talk about it as actually individuals clearly stating their opinions and feelings, firmly advocating for their rights and needs without violating the rights of others. You need to be able to speak and for others to listen in a respectful way for anything good to happen, really. And it can be difficult, and particularly in a corporate environment or a work environment, everyone sort of minds their P's and Q's. And so there are tools to encourage or to normalise being able to speak more openly. And I couch all of this with, this is, I do mean respectfully as well, this isn't about being one of those people that goes, well, I just speak my mind and then is really rude to people in the office. It's not about that. It's about sharing respectfully. So 
There's an Airbnb had one called oh, Vomit Dead Fish Elephant. Yeah. Um, and it was just a little sort of gay, I mean, a kind of joke in a way, but Vomit was like, just get it out, something you've just got to get out. Dead fish is something that's hanging around, that's smelly, that people aren't bringing up. <laughs> An elephant is something that's here that no one's mentioning. That's clearly a massive issue. And just having a bit of a jokey way of talking about it, you can just say, I feel like there's a dead fish in this room, come on, like, what is it? It allows, gives people a forum and a structure for raising things. The one that I had to use, and I've even used it around my dining table with my kids, which my husband thinks is super nice, is rosebud thorn. So, you know, you can do a round of it. I, I first came across it by... Long story, being at a dinner with those people I didn't know, work dinner, and the woman said, let's do a round of Rosebud Thorn. I thought, this is awful. And actually, it was amazing. They all knew each other. I didn't know them. But by the time it got round to me, I was like, I'm ready to share anything. Roses, <laughs> um, Rose is like a thing that's going really well. Bud is a thing that you're really excited about. And Thorn is something which is, you know, a worry or a bother. And the woman who, um, this woman called Sharon, Ca- Sharon Callahan, who did a the, the rose and the bud were work-related things. Um, and the thorn was she was really worried about a friend who, a, a colleague of theirs, who was really ill. And she was really heartfelt when she spoke about it. And she just set a tone for everyone to be really candid and to share. And by the way, we did it. It was a dinner of like 30 of us. And by the end of it, I was just thought, I just feel so much more comfortable with these people. I just feel like I know them better. I feel I've been able to have a moment of honesty with them. To model that as a leader at the start of a gathering or a meeting or a working relationship in a respectful so way is really, those tools are really powerful, yeah, particularly so for good. people like me who just, you know, find it a bit tricky to, <laughs> so good. to say if something's on my mind. Sarah, we are coming to the end of the podcast. I told you I could keep going on forever. But, you know, before we do wrap up, I'm super interested to know, you know, what learnings have you taken from the book? My big learning is I'm in a big messy middle, which, you know, you'll know from the book, there's a whole thing around transitions and going from one place to the other. I decided in September last year, or just before that, actually, that I was going to leave my job as a CEO. Um, We had the book deal and I was getting to a point in my career where I thought what am I going to do for the next 20 years and I don't think it's going to be this and I want to know what that is and I realized that I for the first time I felt that I was able to close something without immediately opening another door and to go through that kind of curious phase in between. It is quite uh, you know I wake up at night going oh my god but it's been amazing so I'm that's what I've learned from it I'm in my curious phase so I've been it's been sort of seven months now and in that period of time, I've I've written the book. I'm doing a new series of podcasts. I, I coach some CEOs, some C-suite people. And I also do some consultancy projects on organizational culture. And as the months have gone on, I'm sort of landing in the space that I that I want to be in, that I want to work in, which is working as an organizational strategist, mm-hmm. which is using my old strategic skills and my love of people to help companies with their vision, with their mission, and to create a working environment where people feel they are sort of respected and where they can bring their best. And I wouldn't have been able to to sort of explore that path and get to that place if I just leapt from one thing into another. But I think this process allowed me to go, one needs to take time if you're going to do a transition. You need to take the time to explore it and be curious and try out some things and, you know, not seek to, to find the answers too quickly. So it's a big midlife rebuild in a way for me. And the book has taught me to take my time over it. That's exciting. Though. Yeah, it's exciting. And if people are interested to 
find out more about what you're doing and, you know, if you could help them, how can they reach you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Sarah Tay, or on Twitter, Sarah okay. K. Tay, and I'll send you some links and you can put them in the show yeah, notes. I can put them on the thing. Great. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that I haven't asked you? I just think what you're doing with Thai is amazing. It's so interesting because I've known about the Thai project for a really long period of time, but only now as I've got older and that I'm myself getting more comfortable with being outside my comfort zone. Yeah that I realise what an amazing shortcut it is to doing that, you know. <laughs> so rather than have to go through 45 years of various crises, I could have just come and done Thai and then I would have figured it out much sooner. But no, but in all seriousness, I, I just think it is an amazing thing to do. And it is all about teaching people those skills of resilience mm-hmm. and resourcefulness and really realising that you can overcome more than you think totally. in situations that are far outside your comfort zone. So oh, yeah, so you're doing cool. brilliant. Thank you. That's so kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it has been amazing. I look forward to another conversation, hopefully not in the next 20 years, because I think that's been how long (laughs) it's been since we've spoken. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing. Super inspirational. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. This is Philippa again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, this is your chance to get involved with Thai. If you work in the commercial world, whatever your profession, your position, or your experience, then Thai could be for you. You may have been in business for decades, but have always felt there's another way. Or you may just have a few years experience, but want to do more. Equally, if you want to create game-changing employees and see your company impact the world, we've got you covered. Thai has never been more necessary than right now, and you can be a part of it. Reach out to me at philippa at theinternationalexchange.co.uk and I can tell you more. Or join the Thai Accelerator info session for more information. Apply.thaiaccelerator.com. Better leaders, better companies, better world. I'm your host, Philippa White. This podcast has been co-produced by Berna Vieira and me. Music by Berna Vieira and artwork by Kelps Verheis. I hope we'll meet again soon.